and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. It's good to see you guys. Well, before we get to our message, uh, let me give you just some advice. Um, it's just advice, though. Uh, you know how we talked about doctrinal issues being uh, just uh, issues being of primary importance or secondary importance or even tertiary importance, kind of third level. Doctrine is simply what we believe about God. It's kind of the summed up nature of what we believe of Scripture. Everyone has doctrine, if you like it or not. Someone told me once, they go, I don't have any doctrine. I go, well, that's actually a doctrine. But what doctrine is, uh, what do, with doctrine that's of primary or the highest importance, or what we sometimes call closed-handed doctrine, those are doctrines that are essential to the faith, the Christian faith, and are universally held by all true believers. They are what unites us worldwide throughout time as the real church. For instance, believing Jesus is the Son of God is of primary importance, or that the Bible uh, is the Word of God, or the virgin birth, or the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, yet existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and what? God the Holy Spirit. Those are all examples of primary doctrine. This is serious stuff. And I always try to point that out. When we run across primary doctrine, I say, look, this, this is of primary importance. But then there are secondary things that are very, very important, but on which good Christians come down on different sides of difficult issues. They're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Or in other words, because they are secondary issues, they don't determine if they are believers or not, but they're still very important. You with me? Like baptism. We're Baptist. Like how, how much water do you use? Is dunking them uh, okay or is sprinkling? Now, see, I'm a Baptist, so I'll shove you under, right? I'm a, I'm a dunker. But it, it's a secondary issue but I feel pretty strongly about it. Are you with me? And then even issues of the third level or tertiary issues, they can really feel very important sometimes at the moment, uh, but they really don't affect your walk with Christ as much. They're not as important. But even with tertiary issues, I've seen immature Christians and sometimes even more mature Christians get real bent out of shape. In my opinion, we shouldn't even really ever divide over third level issues. Stuff like what style of music or, or do you, uh, what order of the service or what time services are, what should the pastor wear to preach on Sundays? And obviously the right answer is always Wranglers. Now here's, here's why I bring that stuff up. Today we're going to cover some deep stuff. And, and this week and the next few weeks, Jesus preaches on how and why and even when and who is saved. And there are different interpretations of what that means. And in those interpretations, people can really get upset quick. People can get into a certain camp about what they believe and they're unwilling or to even hear or discuss whether they might be wrong or at least not as fully right as they could be. 
Let me say that stuff that we're covering today. They're secondary issues. You, you hear me? They're secondary issues. They are not primary issues. But what makes this section of scripture particularly delicate is that all those secondary issues, they are addressing primary issues. Does that make sense? And that's where the passion comes in about this. For me, I know what I believe. I, I know what I'm going to preach here today. I'm not second guessing myself. I've, I've had this belief for many, many years. And what I'm going to preach today and in future weeks will reflect what I believe is right, sound, true doctrine according to the full counsel of God's word. What I believe is true, but I'm always, always want to remain open for God to teach me more. And to be corrected, I want to grow in him. If you do, say amen. Because I know that this may surprise you. I've been wrong before. And God carefully grew me in my understanding of what I believe and why right out of Scripture. He used Scripture to change my heart. Today, as we move forward... um, Today and really in future weeks, I'll bring up some doctrines that I do disagree with, and I'll do that to help you understand why I think those are wrong or incomplete and why you should agree with me. I probably won't go very far into those doctrines I disagree with because, well, I think they're wrong, and I don't want to teach you something that I think is wrong. Does that make sense to you? But here's the deal. I want you to understand If you disagree with me on an area that we hit today, please know that these are secondary issues. There's no reason to get angry or upset. Now relax. Even though we disagree, that's okay. It's a secondary issue. We can still be friends and hold on to what we believe is right. Amen? But my request is twofold. One, please hold me accountable to Scripture This right here, not what you feel. In other words, keep your Bible handy. Use it to develop the doctrine you have based on Scripture and be able then to show how it works for you. And second, at the very same time, make sure that you're open to what God the Holy Spirit is going to teach you through that. Now, I say all that because back in the early 1990s, I thought I had my doctrine down pat on this, and I understood what it was for a long time. I had had it down pat. But something happened to me in that that was kind of strange. As I used my Bible to try to refute the doctrine we'll be looking at today and weeks to come, I began to agree with it instead. Now, it took me 15 years, maybe closer to 20 years, but God changed my heart and mind on this stuff long before we opened Bentry. So if you have questions, come ask me or or go to one of your shepherding elders. They'll be here right after the gathering to pray, to talk to you, discuss stuff in your D3 groups. That's cool. But here's what not to do. Don't get angry. Disagree. Without being disagreeable. Well, like a big roller coaster we're about to get on. You know, maybe your tummy's uh, churning now because I said all this. But make sure your hands and feet are inside the vehicle at all times and buckle up. Hold that Bible right in front of you. Cool? 
Let's get going on this. Let's look at our passage. Here it is in John 6, verse 35 through 37. One of our shepherd elders, Dave Amlin, read this. Thank you, Brother Dave. Uh, it's an intense passage, and we've been on it a couple of weeks now, but because this passage may be one of the most difficult parts of Scripture of the entire gospel to not only understand, but to put into practice. However, even though they are difficult passages and intense, we're going to find some of the deepest truths revealed to us in all of Scripture about the mind and the heart of God himself. That's because they focus on the grace and the sovereignty of God in all things, specifically in salvation. What we're going to find unsettling, though, as we read these passages, is it's going to take away any confidence we might place in and of ourselves and our own ability to save ourselves. It takes away even our ability to think we might be able to contribute somehow to our salvation. It leaves us with the correct diagnosis of our spiritual condition without Jesus. We're not spiritually well. We're not well and able to do whatever God requires us to do to be saved on our own merit. Before Christ, we're not spiritually kind of just sick, but well enough to kind of open our mouth and take some medicine and go, oh, I guess, no, no, no. Scripture is really, really clear on this one. Without Jesus, we're spiritually dead. Amen? Now, why say that? Because when the Apostle Paul is addressing the believers in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he says this in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3. He's talking to Christians now, but weren't. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before Christ Jesus calls us to life spiritually by the power of his Holy Spirit, we are a spiritual corpse. Alive physically, dead spiritually. Dead in our own sin and completely and totally unable to do anything to satisfy the righteous anger of God directed at us. Because of the sin that we're all guilty of. And if we're going to be saved, it must be by the sovereign grace of God alone. We, t- we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but what Jesus is teaching right here at the beginnings of the doctrines of grace, dog, remember? Look at this definition that we looked at a couple of times before. Doctrines of grace, dog, the five major headings that stand together, unified, is one comprehensive statement of the saving purposes of God. Do you remember these? If you don't, write them down. Here they are. Uh, well, let's look at them here. Uh, I, or as I've told you, when I see these in my Bible, write these down. Just simply write out dog by the scripture. Uh, the dogs are at the heart of the foundational principles of Reformed faith. Uh, 
That's what our denomination, our church is based on. Let's quickly review these. We won't get to all of them today, but Jesus will cover them all in his teaching from now on to the end of John. Make sense? So you need to be aware of them even if you disagree with them. And once you know these and you understand them, what's crazy is you'll begin to see them all through Scripture, Genesis all the way through Revelation and and, and everywhere in between. All right, here are the five major headings of the doctrines of grace. Remember, these stand together. Radical depravity. Sovereign election. Definite atonement. Irresistible call. And preserving grace. Like I said, we're going to get to all of these over time. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, preserving grace. Now let's go historical for just a few minutes here. Let's go historical. You know I like history. The rediscovery of the biblical foundation, the biblical gospel right from Jesus himself. And we're talking right here that we're studying. And the other New Testament authors like Paul and Peter and John and James, right here, God used uh, this in the life of these guys that we quote, you hear me quote all the time. Guys from the, the Reformation, guys that fought to reform the Roman Catholic Church back to a true church that adheres to the clear teachings of Scripture. Dudes like Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Bucer, and tons of other great guys from then, 500 years ago through now. Folks, this is why we are Protestants rather than Roman Catholics. You may may not have realized this is the difference because we believe in the authority of the five solas. You've heard me preach on these many times if you've been here any time at all. They are this, the five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone for the glory of God alone. This is what the Reformation is based on right here. 500 years ago, these five solas. Now, we'll preach again on these in depth another time. But the reformers 500 years ago and through the present, you'll understand what I mean. They began to be called Protestants because they were protesting against the church hierarchy that had corrupted the biblical gospel, the grace that God has for us. The corrupt Roman Catholic Church had replaced the gospel message of Scripture with a man-centered works righteousness. You do all these things. You do confession, do penance. One that placed the institution of the Church of Rome as the mediator of saving grace instead of Christ Jesus. The preservation of the institution of the Church of Rome had become more important than its Christ-giving purpose to reach the world. The Reformation was about not relying on a pope or a church council or some tradition for doctrine. So the Reformers had this idea that we still hold to now that go go back to the source. Go back to Scripture itself. One of the great things the Reformation did is to launch this idea inside the church should always be reforming. We should always be reforming back to what this is telling us, not to what a pope says. 
Because if you look at the church history, even our history, you older dudes, like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, both large and small, small amounts of just false teaching kind of creeps in. This is why it's critical that the church have several biblical solid elders and pastors that, are, can, that can contend for biblical faith. Now, you following me? So, so we always have to be going back to Scripture to make sure that we're, what we're teaching is actually what we believe and we act upon what is actually in God's Word. We, we want it all to line up. Now, the reason I'm so passionate about this is because the last 50 to 100 years especially, but it goes back 150 years, the American church simply quit teaching the solid old school doctrine recovered in the Reformation. Biblical, historical, evangelical, confessional, they went light. You see what I mean? They just went light beer on me. As in, not much biblical preaching. They sought uh, to compromise with the culture around them than rather than convict it. Because it's just, it's uncomfortable to convict culture. Some of you are squirming in your seats right now. They talked more in the last 50, 100 years about how to be a better person, a better American, and how the people in those churches simply, they just didn't hear much gospel truth. They just didn't hear much of the Bible taught. So as false theology kind of creeps in and so many Christians simply don't know enough scripture and solid doctrine to know any difference. And don't be afraid of that word doctrine again. It means simply what we believe about scripture. And because it's not been taught, most Christians, most of you in here, simply can't defend themselves When false doctrine starts to creep in. You just don't even know it's there. God takes false doctrine seriously. God indicts false teachers that stand in the pulpit. He said this about the false teachers in Hosea. The book of Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. God says, he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. He says, because you, the teachers, have rejected knowledge, I reject you now from being a priest to me. These false teachers are now in many churches, most churches. And in the end, those churches just close their doors because the people that go there are like, why bother? This is just like a nice warm pat on the back and it's just not that good. The good news is that so many churches like ours and a few others in town right here, sister churches, are starting to then rediscover just solid biblical preaching, going verse by verse preaching. And they're giving people good doctrine to live their lives by. Now, I'm encouraged. These churches are growing nationally and internationally. You hear the church shrinking nationally. That's true, but it's the progressive part of the church. The real church is growing, and don't let anybody tell you different. Probably like many of you who are raised as a Christian, I personally was raised with pretty tainted doctrine of salvation that said, it's what I do to be saved And the burden of my salvation rests on me to be good enough. 
And it took me years and lots of study in the Holy Spirit to come to a better understanding of the doctrines of grace and accept them as true. But it was a battle for me. I mean, I fought hard against believing the doctrines of grace. Like I was, a, I was an animal against them. I, like I said, 15 uh, to 20 years, I fought them. Because I fi- simply thought they portrayed God in this bad light. And I, didn't, I kind of felt bad for God. And at first, the doctrines of grace, they're hard to believe. Pastor and author Steve Lawson says the doctrines of grace are not hard to understand. They're hard to swallow. And Charles Spurgeon said about the doctrines of grace, the great uh, pastor, he said, they have rough edges that grate on our natural ideas of who God is and how he deals with mankind. So what I share with you today, I don't want to come across as a know-it-all. I don't mean that, but I do want you to find the truth I found in Scripture especially here in Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6. We hear two parallel truths. If you've been here very long, you've heard me say that throughout John and the New Testament. Two parallel truths that go together. On one hand, the free universal offer of the gospel that we see in John 3.16. Here in John 6.37, that's a truth. And yet right along with it, we see the parallel truth of God's sovereignty at work in our salvation. Both of those are true. We've likened that in the past of looking at railroad tracks that go off into the distance. They don't touch on this side of eternity. Maybe they will on the other side and we can understand that. Why we, why we um, try so hard to reconcile these two things in our little heads, we can't though. At least not on this side of heaven. But right now, there's this dynamic tension between these two truths. God is sovereign. At the same time, man's responsibility to believe. Both of those are true. The doctrines of grace, well, they can ruffle your feathers. So hang on. Please know that I offer this in love with many years of study. It's not something I just started. And I offer it humbly and in love. All right, enough history Let's get back to our text. And remember, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Listen to what Jesus is saying here and keep looking at your Bible. Hold me accountable. In chapter 6 of John, this crowd listening to Jesus was thinking that we can somehow manipulate God into saving us because what we do or who we are as Jews. Jesus is saying, no. You don't have to understand all, th- all these terms right now. We'll unpack them as Jesus teaches them in the scripture to come. For instance, a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, radical corruption, our, the very first one. Some call it total depravity. It, it's not that we all are as evil as we possibly could be. Rather, every part of our being has been affected by our inherited sin nature. Remember, we're not sinners because we sin, are we? We sin because we are sinners. It is our nature. Look at verse 36 again with me. There in your Bible or here up at the screen. Jesus says, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now remember this crowd had seen this tremendous miracle of feeding these 20, 25,000 people. Do you know how many truckloads of food that would be? 
They had followed him from the far side of the Sea of Galilee the next day, all the way to Capernaum. Jesus had just told them of his identity right before this, that he is the divine son of God. So he says, he says, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen me do this miracle that only God could do, and yet you do not believe. You've seen that I've said, you've heard me say that I'm the son of God. Now don't miss this. He's not just describing the situation with the crowd. We know that because just a few verses down in verse 44, we're going to get to, is he says, no one can come to me unless, unless the father who sent me draws him. Here's the first principle of the two we're going to look at today. Write this down. First principle, mankind's total spiritual inability. Mankind's total spiritual inability. Inability. Now, the reason these people did not believe is because they could not believe. And look, Jesus isn't surprised by that. They had literally seen something that only God could do the feeding of this mass crowd. They had heard Jesus' claim of divinity, but they could not believe. Now, here's a warning, 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 Will Robinson. You old people remember that. It's easy to get the wrong, very wrong idea. What Jesus is saying is that people have a physical inability to be saved and that man is excused, not excused by his physical failing. This is a spiritual inability Jesus is talking about. Let me see if I can explain it. This picture a room. On one side is Jesus over here. And on the other side is a man. And all he has to do is get up and walk over to Jesus and be saved. You got the picture? Okay. The man could do it if he had the ability to stand up and walk. But let's say the man is lame. He can't walk. His legs don't work. If that were the picture, walking over to Jesus would be impossible. No one would blame that man for his inability to walk over to Jesus because he can't walk physically. The same is true if the man were blind. All you need to do is to look to Jesus and to be saved. But if the man can't see, he can't see Jesus and his blind eyes would keep him. Now, no one would hold that guy guilty for his inability. We're not talking about a physical inability to find Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, come to me, he doesn't mean it in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Now, when he says, come to me, he means believe in me, place your trust in me. He uses those two phrases interchangeably in John. But something much deeper, something that gets right at the deep root of our nature, and that is the sin that you and I and all of us are guilty of. Let me see if I can give you another way to think about it. There are two types of animals. Uh, there are these types of animals, not two types. They're just types of animals that will only eat plants, grass, grains. Uh, we call them herbivores, right? 
But if we put a big basket of grass in front of a hungry lion, will he eat it? No. Why? Because he's a carnivore. He eats meat like me. Now think about it. It's not that the lion can't possibly eat the oats or the hay. He can physically eat them, but it's not in his nature to do so. In fact, he would starve to death before he'd eat oats. Now if you put that bale of hay in front of the lion, he won't eat it because as a lion, as a carnivore, it's not in his nature to eat that. Does that make sense? By the way, the opposite is also true. A little lamb won't eat meat either. Even though it has the ability, it will literally starve to death instead of eat raw meat in front of it. Now bring it back to us, mankind. The same is true with mankind's inability to seek God. It's simply not in our nature, sinful nature, to seek God. Why? Well, we all inherit when we are born into this sinful world, a sinful nature. Now, here's the thing. It's actually worse than what I'm saying. When we talk about our will to do this or that, here's the problem that comes in. Write this down. Do your best to understand it. Apart from God's grace given to us, a man will not admit his need of a savior and will not come to Jesus Christ to have that need met. Write it down. I forgot my drink. I got to get a drink. Apart from God's grace given to us, a man will not admit his need of a Savior and will not come to Jesus Christ to have that need met. Now, it's even worse than that. If we think that our will is the real us, it means that mankind, because of the fall, is totally depraved in spiritual things. You could say that mankind at the very core is depraved. By the way, don't take my word for it. How do we know that from Scripture? How do we know it? Turn to Romans 3 for just a minute. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 10 through 12. He says, as it is written. So he's quoting the Old Testament. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In our unsaved, natural, sinful state, even if we wanted to, we are incapable of a moral life, aren't we? All right, look at this verse again. There is no one righteous. That's our inability in moral terms. There is no one who understands. Even our minds, we have no ability there either. Our minds have been corrupted by sin. There is no one who seeks God. That speaks of our will, doesn't it? The core of us. No one seeks God. How many people seek God? No. No. Right, because we lack the ability to seek God spiritually. Now, this is really, really, really bad news. If this is just dawning on you, this is what makes our situation so very desperate. We have no ability to get to God. And quite frankly, even if we did, 
If we wanted to, there's simply no way to get to him. Now, when I was a younger man, and I thought the doctrines of grace and reformed doctrine was just, I don't know, it's just a bunch of old guys in a room that came up with this new way of salvation. I would say something like, but the Bible teaches that anyone who will may come. And that is true. But I lack some key understanding. Can you see what it is? But now, this old me would ask the younger and quite frankly better looking me back then this question. Question. But who wills to come? Answer. No one. Do you see that? Do you see it in scripture? What Jesus is saying? So what is Jesus getting at in this part? How then are we saved? This is solid doctrines of grace stuff. Write this down. No one wills to come except those in whom the Holy Spirit has made alive in Christ Jesus. No one wills to come except those in whom the Holy Spirit has made alive in Christ Jesus. So important you get that. Back to chapter 3 of John. Way back to chapter 3, like a year ago, we heard Jesus teach this doctrine to the chief teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. That to see the kingdom of God, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born Again, literally translated, you must be born of heaven, meaning born spiritually. Now, this is at the core of Reformed doctrine. No one except those that God, the Holy Spirit, has called to life, or you could say made alive, can come to Jesus. This process of the spirit making us alive in Christ Jesus is entirely what we call irresistible grace. This is the second of those two principles that we'll look at today. Here it is. Second principle, the Holy Spirit's working to give us life in Christ Jesus is called irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit's work To give us life in Christ Jesus is called irresistible grace. This is a miracle. Every time someone is saved, it is a work of God, the Holy Spirit. No exceptions. We can say the Holy Spirit made me spiritually, made spiritual blind eyes see who Jesus really is, the Son of God. We could say the Holy Spirit has open spiritually deaf ears to finally, finally hear the truth and believe in Jesus as Savior. And we could also say that the Holy Spirit has raised spiritually dead people to life. They were made alive in Christ Jesus. That's what it is to be born again. Now, what's very powerful here is this. When a sinner begins to understand how wretched And wicked they are, he or she truly is, in God's sight. 
and how impossible it would be to save themselves. It's then that the sinner begins to understand the absolute necessity for God's irresistible call and his electing grace. We'll get to that soon because Jesus does. Of God choosing us and giving us to Jesus because we can't choose him. We have no ability to choose God since we are dead spiritually. It's really only at that point that a sinner begins to see how desperate their situation really is. That they're lost. Now hear me out. Hear me out. I know this has messed some of you up of how your salvation works. Just hang with me, baby. You're going to get there. Keep walking with me, especially over the next few chapters, as Jesus begins to unpack this stuff for how someone is actually saved. Now, if you're still thinking to yourself that you have this ability in the super uh, spiritual sense to save yourself and come at your own time to Jesus, you're missing what Jesus is preaching here. No matter how small you think your ability is to choose God and when you choose God without the Holy Spirit making you alive, you are setting yourself up as the sovereign in the relationship with God. Like it's saying, God can't act without my permission. Oh, you just made yourself God. And yet he's the all-powerful sovereign God that even my existence, my breathing right now is at the hands of Jesus. And minimum, if that's your belief, you're saying that you are co-sovereign with God. And let me point out something just philosophically here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There can never be more than one sovereign God. There cannot be two. Because they would not be sovereign then, would they? And you might say, well, what about the three persons of the Trinity, Paul? And you, Well, remember, the Trinity means one God existing in three persons. One God who is sovereign. If sovereign means supreme ruler, and it does, and if there is anything or anyone that then can force God to do something or not to do something, then that thing or that entity or person is then the real God. And that would mean our God we worship is not sovereign. The thing forcing God to do something would then be the sovereign, even if it's just a set of rules. Now, here's what I'm getting at. If you think that you'll become a Christian at a future time, like you know the gospel and you go, hey, I'll just decide when I get saved. Like whenever you're ready and that there's a lot of life to live and then you'll seek Jesus later on and, and then you'll get saved. Like if you think you can make yourself believe maybe right at the last moment on your deathbed, you go, then I'll believe. Then I'll say yes to God. The problem with that comes is when you realize that the Bible is actually true. And God's word is true. And you realize that when it says, namely, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, you have no ability to choose him. Listen to me. You cannot come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit calls you. And that itself is entirely the sovereign choice of God and him alone. If that is what you're thinking, you will face despair on your deathbed. 
Because think about it. How can you be saved if it's neither in your nature or in your power to trust God through Jesus? Because you're spiritually dead. You can't. You have no hope at all. Unless, unless, unless God intervenes. In spite of your sinful desires and how wretched you are, and I am, and God saves you and gives you grace, and he says, I love you. That's the part of the gospel that just makes me weep every time. I think about it. It it does. That I couldn't come to God on my own. I had no way in my sinfulness. But God made me aware of how bad my sin was by calling me to life in the Holy Spirit. I was born again. Near the end of the summer of 1974, And although I saw how desperate my situation was, I also was able to now hear the gospel message of Christ Jesus' offer of life. He made me spiritually alive that summer. It wasn't that I didn't understand the gospel in a mental sense. I did. But what I mean is a spiritual sense I did not understand. I was spiritually dead. I was made alive, born again, Born from above. Maybe that's you today. That you have your eyes open to salvation. Of who you are and who God is. That you have been made alive in Christ Jesus by the working of the Spirit of God in you. Here's how you know if that's true. You ready? You realize that you can't get to God because of your sin. And you realize how wicked you really are. You have this guilt. And yet, and yet, you hear the gospel message of this offer of real life and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And you believe now Jesus is the Son of God. If this is the case, it means you have been born again, regenerated. So what do you do now with that? Convert. Switch teams. Leave your old life behind. It's why we call it conversion right here. Leave behind your old way of thinking. Leave behind the sins of the past. The other way I like to say it is repent. Repentance. Now, I need you to listen very carefully to me right now. Conversion and repentance is not the cause of your regeneration. Being born again is the, it is a result of being born again. Make sense? Repent means to turn from your old ways and way of thinking and acting and living and beginning to follow Jesus with every area of your life. To leave sin behind and begin to follow what Jesus says in his word. Regeneration precedes conversion. Conversion doesn't produce regeneration. Regeneration precedes conversion. Regeneration occurs at the subconscious level, like your physical birth. Anybody remember your physical birth? Praise God we don't. Amen? 
And many times we really don't know exactly what point that we were born again. I know it was sometime in the summer of 1974, but I nailed it down when I was baptized on October 13th, 1974. Conversion, on the other hand, repentance occurs at a conscious level. Conversion is the evidence that you have been born again. If that is you right now, if that's you, you believe you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower. You and me were brothers, or you're my sister in Christ. You have now been adopted into the family of God. And listen, listen, you'll not be very good at following Jesus at first. And that's okay. Neither are any of us who've been Christians for a long time. We'll help you start up this Bent Tree discipleship pathway. Just a a plan that we go, look, here's how you grow here at Bent Tree. Simply a path of following Jesus right out of Scripture to, to more maturity in Christ Jesus as you go down this path. Becoming everything God has called you, everything he's designed you to be. But here's some good things that you can do to get started. First, get baptized. We have those baptism services regularly. You can do that. uh, Sign up with a little QR code. Now, listen, baptism doesn't save you. You're already saved. What baptism does is to symbolize the old dead sinful you being buried And God raising up the new you in Christ Jesus. Second, let's make sure you get a good study Bible. Make sure you get a good study Bible. There's all kinds. Your shepherding elders can help you. The ESV study Bible is a good one. Um, And start reading it. Start with this book. This one we're studying here. John, just go through it. Carefully read it and then do it again. Study what the notes say. Third, make this place your home. Become a member and come every week and get plugged into a D3 group, a small group that can kind of help you walk through the early steps of faith at that discipleship pathway that we've talked about. Now, do you believe in Jesus? If you do, just say amen. Do you believe that he is the son of God? Well, we've covered a ton, haven't we? Maybe we're just scratching the surface. Uh, you're, you're going to love next week. I, I, I can't wait for it. Well, let's, let's tell him about it right now with a time of prayer. Would you bow your head? Let's, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love that you have loved us first, that you came for us when we were unlovable, when we were ready to spit in your face and punch you and to live our own life, that you said, I love you enough to send your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ. God, we love you because you poured out your wrath of our sin onto Jesus. We love you because you gave us his righteousness. We love you that you have given your Holy Spirit to all those who believe that we can be led by you. God, we love you for all those things. And we will for all eternity. As you just pray, I ask you to take a moment. 
and just thank God personally for your salvation. Some of you are wrestling with, am I saved? Am I saved or not? You've got this tremendous guilt. If you would, just look up here if, if you're feeling that. Here's the thing. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe He is the Son of God? Here's my point. People that are unregenerate, that haven't come to faith yet, they have no guilt. They have no worry of that. Just that you are worried about your own sin is proof that the Holy Spirit is working in your life right now. So repent. Repent of your sin. And listen, I get it. it. We're tempted every day. I've sinned already today. Ask for forgiveness. God, would you just correct my heart? Help me grow. And slowly but surely, you'll learn to follow Christ. I want to pray for you right now, though, too. God, for those that have just placed their faith in you and have just realized who you are, Jesus, would you make yourself real to them? I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ to come around them. I pray that they'd find just a a great fit in their D3 group and in here and someone that can mentor and disciple them. God, I pray that they would grow into all that you have them to be so they can disciple those around them. That they can be the, the people sharing the gospel in messed up families. In a hard work environment with bosses that are difficult. God, that you would help them realize that they are your gospel to a hurting world. God, thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us as we worship together? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.